You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview Republic EN Executive Director and former United States Congressman Bob Inglis, and we talk about how a Republican congressman became concerned about climate change, how climate change is the greatest economic opportunity of the 21st century, and how America can lead the world in solving climate change via a free enterprise system. Hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy that's here to help your business solve the climate crisis by going carbon neutral. To learn more, visit EmergerStrategies.com. All right, so thanks for listening to the Sustainable Angler podcast. Uh, really excited today to have Bob Inglis, uh, former congressman, and uh, without giving too much of an introduction or, 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 or putting words in your mouth, Bob, I, I thought I'd let you uh, do, do, do your own intro here and, and get us started off. Okay, so I'm a recovering politician. Um, so, yeah, on this uh, uh, thing about, uh, you know, the environment and climate, I will tell you that uh, for my first six years in Congress, I said climate change was nonsense. I, I didn't know anything about it except that Al Gore was for it. Um, and inasmuch as I represented probably one of the reddest districts in the reddest state of the nation, uh, Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, that was the end of the inquiry for me. So uh, I admit that's pretty ignorant, um, but that's the way it was for my first six years in Congress. Uh, then I was out six years doing commercial real estate law again in Greenville, South Carolina, um, and had the opportunity to run for the same seat uh, again in 2004, uh, Greenville Spartanburg seat. And so I, um, uh, I was in that race. My son came to me. He was voting for the first time in 2004 because he just turned 18. He's the eldest of our five kids. And he said to me, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. Um, his four sisters agreed. His mother agreed. New constituency was born, you know. Um, very important to respond to that constituency. They can <laughs> right. change the locks on the doors, you know. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, that was step one of a three-step metamorphosis. And, and by the way, my son was going to vote for me no matter what, right? I mean, it wasn't in his economic interest to vote against me. <laughs> sure. Um, it's, it's possible that you lose by one vote, you know? And so Robert knew that we were mortgaging the farmette that we live on. Uh, farmette, you know, that's where you're pretending to be a farmer. You're not really a farmer, but, you know, it's 27 acres and a couple of horses and nine chickens at the moment and a big garden. And so we pretend to be farmers. Um, and so <laughs> literally mortgaging the farmette, Robert knew that. Um, and uh, so he was going to vote for me no matter what. What he's really saying was, Dad, I love you. And you can be better than you were before. So how about make this English 2.0? the new and improved version. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was step one of this three-step metamorphosis. Step two is going to Antarctica with the science committee and seeing the evidence in the ice core drillings. We can go into that if you want to. And then step three, 
was another science committee trip and something of a spiritual awakening, which seems unlikely on a godless science committee trip, doesn't it? Because, um, you know, all scientists are godless. Um, uh, well, apparently not, because uh, this uh, Australian climate scientist was showing us the glories of the Great Barrier Reef. And I could tell that he and I shared a worldview. Um, you know, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. And so Scott was preaching, his name is Scott Heron. He's become a very dear friend now, but he he's preaching the gospel without any words. I could see it in his eyes, could hear it in his voice that he was telling me about the corals. But what he's really doing was worshiping God, the creator of those corals. So I could tell that we shared a worldview. Later, we had a chance to talk. And he told me about uh, conservation changes he's making in his life in order to love God and love people. Uh, you know, he does some things that probably some of our conservative friends would find funny. You know, he rides his bike to work. He tries to do without air conditioning in Townsville, Australia. Pretty hot place, as long as his wife and three daughters will let him get away with it. Um, hangs the family's clothes out on the line. All to consciously love people coming after us. And so I got right inspired. I, I wanted to be like Scott, loving God and loving people. So I came home and introduced the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009 uh, as an alternative to cap and trade. Um, uh, note to self, do not introduce carbon tax in midst of great recession. When you represent the reddest district in the reddest state of the nation, it will not go well. Um, and it did not go well at all. In fact, after 12, 12 years in Congress, I got 29% of the vote in a Republican runoff. And the other guy got the other 71%. So uh, <laughs> rather spectacular face plant. Yeah. Well, well, and you bring up something that, and, and, uh, that you mentioned uh, about during that, dur during the recession, um, that, I, that I will just add to that, um, which I think is, is kind of interesting. So I was, which I also want to get into, um, but I was born and raised in, in Savannah, Georgia, and I had just graduated from college and had no idea what I wanted to do. And we were in a recession um, or entering in one. It was in 2000, 2008. I guess we were we were already in it, but it was going to get worse. Um, so long story short, I figured if I was going to have uh, you know, a job to, to, to get by, uh, during this recession, I might as well do it somewhere beautiful. So I moved out to Wyoming and, uh, and, and rode that out. But while I was out there and similar to what sounds like, um, may, maybe happened to you on, on the Great Barrier Reef is, you know, I got introduced to America's public lands and Grand Teton National Park and fell in love with fly fishing. And, and that, was what made me feel uh, a sense of responsibility to to want to give back and uh, protect those those special places that um, that were that meant so much to me that that I got to experience and witness with my own eyes and that that is a is a 
long-winded, I guess, and roundabout way of asking you, at what moment during that conversation on the Great Barrier Reef were, were did, did the light bulb go off, I guess, for you? Because for me, it was catching a trout fly fishing, you know, in, in, in Wyoming. Um, that I, that I knew that, Hey, I'm going to do anything I can to protect this because this, this means so much to me. And so, um, my, my question is at what point was that really the, the light bulb moment for you? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think it was, you know, the lights uh, came on in three, those three stages. First was my, my son. It was, uh, you know, um, uh, that was, that was what got it all started. And then it was, the, uh, the first trip to Antarctica and then the, and then that, that spiritual awakening really on the at Great Barrier Reef. Uh, that's, so it was all three of those that finally got it to happen. I think that uh, the, the common thread about all that was, it was really just uh, love of God and love of people. Um, and so it was, um, even in that second trip, the, the trip with the scientist uh, it, it, uh, in Antarctica, um, one of the odd things that happened there was there was a some wonderful master teacher named Donald Manahan, who's a biologist at the uh, University of Southern California. And he was giving us a little tutorial and he'd hear Senator John McCain's question and he'd go to the postdoc level. He'd hear my question and he'd go down to the GED level uh, without any condescension. And, you know, that's what a master teacher can do. They can go the full range. Um, you know, if you don't really know your stuff, you got to stick only in your bandwidth, you know, and just talk right there. But Donald is so bright and such a capable teacher. He can do the whole range. And so, um, he told me they needed to go call his mother. Uh, he had an aging and ailing mother at the time. Uh, I had an aging and ailing mother at the time. And the fact that he needed to go call her uh, made me more able to hear his science. And I know that's really weird, but it's just the way we are as humans is that uh, we're very complex beings and uh, that he's a, a good son and cared about his mother uh, made me able to hear what he was saying about science. And so... Um, uh, yeah, so common uniting thread among all those three steps was really just this uh, love, really love of God, love of people, and and your your love of God and and love of people, I would imagine, uh, came out of your, your your upbringing. Can we can we talk a little bit about about where you're from before you became a a, a congressman in, in South Carolina? Because you know I'm 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 based here in Charleston, so I'm yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that too. Well, actually, I was born in Savannah, Georgia. Oh um, no, no way! Yeah, yeah. In fact, so and at six months, persuaded my parents to move over to Bluffton, South Carolina. Um, and so uh, I was very persuasive. Apparently, at, at age <laughs> six months, actually, what it was is I was the fourth of five kids. So I think they outgrew the house. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so uh, with my arrival, but uh, so. Uh, we moved to Bluffton in 1960. Um, uh, that makes me 60 years old for doing the math there. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, so um, I, my dad worked in Savannah and so uh, at Union Camp. Um, and uh, we used to uh, 
give all those uh, standard explanations, by the way, about why Savannah stunk when the uh, plant Union Camp was, uh, when the wind was coming out of the west um, and uh, bringing the stink into downtown Savannah. I had a very formative experience one time I, I, after law school. I, I went to Duke for college, met my wife. That was the best thing about Duke. And then uh, I went to the University of Virginia for law school. Um, and after law school, practiced law in Savannah for two years at really? uh, Hunter McLean, Exley, and Dunn. And uh, so in that time, uh, about half of my work was with Fort Howard Paper Company was building a billion-dollar recycling mill in Effingham County, Georgia, as you know. Yep. And um, a billion dollars is a lot of money in 1984, that was, 85, 86. Uh, still a lot of money. Uh, but um, so we one, one day, um, the wind was out of the West, and my dad's plant, he was an uh, industrial engineer there, uh, was pumping the stink into downtown Savannah. And uh, uh, Paul Sherrill, the CEO uh, or chairman, I guess he was, of Fort Howard Paper Company, was in town. And I was uh, literally carrying the bags. Uh, I was a brand new lawyer. I was carrying the bags for the uh, managing partner, the law firm. And we hit the street coming down out of the Savannah Bank building. Um, and uh, uh, Paul Sherrill, the CEO of Fort Howard, said, how did they get away with that? No community in which we operate would let us do that to them. And I remember just really quite an experience because growing up, I'd always given the explanation. Well, most of that steam that you coming out of, see coming out of those stacks, and uh, and if you cook wood chips on your stove, they'd smell the same way, and uh, and it smells like bread and butter to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, uh, we need it for the jobs and all that. Well, Fort Howard proceeded, uh, built that plant. It has no appreciable odor. Several years later, my dad's company, Union Camp, that's now, I guess, international paper, yep. um, built a plant in Eastover, South Carolina, no appreciable odor. Get out of here. So the reality was... Uh, Union Camp could have cleaned up that plant in Savannah years before. Um, technology was available. It's just a question of cost. And um, so it illustrates what we talk a lot about at RepublicEN.org, which is if you let a, a firm get away with dumping its trash on society, yep. they will happily get away with it. Sure. But if you finally tell them, no, no, listen, we are tired of that. Um, go ahead and internalize that negative externality. Make it, a, put it in your cost structure. Get rid of the stink. Um, buy the new equipment. Uh, update your plant. Oh, that's terrible. The price of our paper will go up. Well, yeah, let it go up. Let it go up to the actual price of that paper. Right. And, and then the market will work. It's a market distortion that conservatives especially should be offended by that my dad's company was getting away with stinking Savannah, affecting your life, Rick. I mean, you, you were living there. I mean, it's, it's, it's in your lungs. It's, uh, it, it, it rusted out your, your car. Um, it, uh, it, it affected your, the paint on your house. Um, 
is imposing a cost and uh, you, you, you bring accountability, even biblical accountability to a company like Union Camp and you then use the market principle of fixing that distortion and you get innovation. And that's mm. pretty exciting. So yep. you can you can tell it's quite a conservative story, really. It's it's not about liberal tree hugging. It's about saying, no, we be biblically accountable. You can't dump in our lungs your trash anymore. You got to deal with that trash. And then when it causes your cost structure to go up, well, good. Let it go to the actual price. Because across town, there may be a company that can produce without the stink, but their cost would be higher. So once you're made accountable, then you're on a level playing field. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 for the record, I absolutely know that smell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> growing up on, on Whitmarsh Island, and the, uh, it was just always, that's just union camp. Uh, you know, it's just part of life. You just... Move, went on with your day. Oh, wind must be coming out of the West. That's Union Camp. Um, yeah. Although we well, always maintain the Continental Can smelled worse than Union Camp, but uh, <laughs> that's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but you're 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 talking about though is is a market based solution to you know what are the real that what are what is the true cost of you know for example producing oil and gas when it's not taken into or fossil fuels for that matter, when it's not, when you're not accounting for the impact it has on the environment, to people's health, um, you're, you're externalizing that cost versus it having, letting it be a, mar- a truly market driven solution for our energy needs. And, 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 or, am I following you there? Yeah, exactly. It's, and, and really the, the message that we, uh, preach at republicen.org is all about that concept of internalizing negative externalities. I once said that to the Greenville News, the largest newspaper in the district that I represented. Reporter stopped me and said, what'd you say? <laughs> and I said, uh, we need to internalize the negative externalities. He said, I can't write that in this paper, man. We write at the seventh grade level. Um, and so next day, I, I told him, well, reveal the hidden cost. And so the next day in the paper, that's what it said. Engler said, we need to reveal the hidden cost of uh, the burning of fossil fuels. And that's it, right? It's just there are hidden costs that need to be included in the price of the product. If they are, then you get innovation in the free enterprise system. And that innovation can go faster and cheaper and better than the government trying to manipulate it through uh, regulations or fickle tax incentives. The most effective way we believe to, to get this done is just to allow that internalization or to force the internalization and then allow the free enterprise system to operate at its best at that moment. Um, mm-hmm. Because as long as I can get away for example, if I owned Inglis coal-fired electricity, as long as I can get away with socializing my soot, um, it's a good deal for me. Uh, now, I, I, I scrub my stack a little bit, but still a lot of particulates go up in my stack. They end up in my neighbor's lungs. Most of them cough it up um, and go on about their business. Some of them end up in the hospital. When they get to the hospital, I'm not held to account for those costs. 
those are away from me. They're not included in my product's cost. And so that lack of accountability is a huge market distortion. And then, of course, you add the CO2 cost, in other, the climate cost that I'm causing by spewing out CO2. And it's a longer term cost, but it's, it's calculable. You can come up with that number. Um, if you don't put that on me and make me accountable, then um, wind and solar and uh, new nuclear, all of those need subsidies because they can't compete with me as long as society lets me get away with dumping on them. Um, now, of course, the important thing here, Rick, is that to some extent that we, we get to a place where we say, well, it's unavoidable. It's, it's like those years in Savannah with the Union camp stinking. Um, it was assumed that, well, we, there are 5,000 jobs there. In order to keep those jobs, we had to let that plant keep doing what it was doing. Um, and that's, that's where, if we think we don't have a way around it, if we think there's nothing we can do about it, then we just accept it. Um, but what we need to do then is expand the imagination and say, no, no, there's everything we can do about endless coal-fired electricity. I'm in the business of making electricity. I've got capital and customers. I can switch. I can get a small modular nuke going, or I can do wind power, or I can do solar. I can sell it to customers, sell electrons to customers from another source. Um, so we got to, uh, once especially we get conservatives to see that, oh, have some imagination here. There's a way the free enterprise system can do this. This is not, we're not consigned to living with the stink. Um, we can have a prosperous economy and we can have cleaner air. Let's do it. Right. And so it's a win-win and potentially drives new business models and, and to deliver this, um, the, the, the service. And that, and that's actually something that, that I've all, that I've never quite understood in this day and age. And I think what's going to continue to happen is that if I was an energy utility, for example, why, are they not transitioning to becoming energy service providers and just saying, look, you know, cause for like most people can't afford to put solar on their house. Right. But I'll gladly pay for the service of clean energy because I'd rather have clean energy than burning coal, which pollutes the air. So how does, I, I've never been able to get over that. Why, why, these utilities aren't making that transition and maybe they are. Um, and, and I know that that if they are, it takes time. I mean, I, I see more solar farms and things of that nature in South Carolina, but um, it, it's always, that's always bothered me. <laughs> like, yeah. why, why are you not transitioning? Yeah. The, yeah no, it's, it's a, it's a hugely complicated uh, business, of course, uh, power generation. So I'm going to give a simplistic answer that uh, some of your listeners will say, gee, he doesn't understand just how complex it is. It is complex. But part of it, I would answer this way. Um, uh, the way that we deal with regulated uh, monopolies like uh, electricity companies is they're giving a guaranteed rate of return on top of their investment. And so the bigger investment, the better if you're in the utility business. So if you can have a gargantuan power plant that costs gazillion dollars 
and you got a guaranteed rate of return on it, well, your incentive is to build that gargantuan plant. Yeah. Um, as part of it. Another part of it is just some um, some old thinking about central power plants and not a, uh, a decentralized or a system of power generation. And the thing that I wonder about is to the extent that rooftop solar is eating into the business of the big utilities, I just wonder, like you were just wondering, Rick, uh, if you were on a board of a power company, why would you not say, hey, uh, guys and gals, why don't we get in that business? We're Duke Energy. People trust us to come to their house. Let's put systems on their roof. We'll finance them for them. We can go into the capital markets and get capital way cheaper than anybody else in the solar business. We can make a fortune off of this. Um, selling people's <laughs> systems for their roof. We finance them. We get the cheap capital out of the capital markets. We're going to make money. Right. Um, and why don't we do that? Uh, especially in the sunshine state, you know, Florida. Why in the world doesn't Florida Power and Light decide to go whole hog into that business? And now, of course, some would say, well, rooftop is not as efficient as commercial grade solar. Okay, well, you can make that case. Um, but to the extent that people do want to put rooftop solar on their roofs, uh, sell them a system. <laughs> if you're yeah. Florida Power and Light, get in the business. <laughs> right. I, I've, I've wondered this for, for many years now. Um, it's just anyway. So that that's that that's a good answer, though. But um, all right. So so Bob, we we've we've talked about you know climate change. Um, we we are both grew up in, in the low country. Um, some of the things that we're seeing in Charleston are uh, every year it's a new record of days where it floods here in Charleston. Um, we're seeing you know more intense and, and saturated storms, um, which are from from my understanding and, and from what I read, those are um, a result of, of climate change, right? So we're burning fossil fuels, we're putting um, more gases into the atmosphere, it's heating our planet. So um, I guess, are, are there any other um, on, on threats that you care to discuss, you know, uh, that, that, that you've seen uh, personally as it relates to, to climate change? And uh, are you still in the Greenville area, I guess? Yeah. Um, yes, I live in uh, upstate of South Carolina, Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina. But um, yes, I'll give you another example of that. It's uh, Bluffton oysters, which are the best oysters in the world. Uh, I will challenge any of your listeners to disprove me. Um, and, I agree. Uh, so I'll, sam I'll sample whatever oyster they want to give me, but I, I believe that Bluffton oysters are the best. I um, agree. The May River. Absolutely. I grew up on the May River. That's, <laughs> that's where I grew up. And, and so... So your listeners know it's a, it's a saltwater estuary that uh, dumps out on the back of uh, Hilton Head and the Calabogie Sound. And uh, so we're uh, where my parents moved me to and my siblings to in 1960 is about eight miles up from the, Cal uh, from the mouth of the river in the Calabogie Sound. And so, um, uh, so the oysters, uh, well, there are not as many of them. Uh, mm -hmm. It could be overfishing. It could be wave action. There are too many boats in the May River now. 
um, uh, particularly the guy with the twin 300s. He's never driven before and he he pushes it half speed through the water and destroys the banks. Okay, right. that's my pet peeve. <laughs> um, and uh, or it could be, it could be uh, the water temperature. It could be ocean acidification, or it could be the air temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some combination of those last things are getting right on over into climate change. Um, those earlier things are, are, are maybe overfishing and uh, overuse and uh, too much wave action. Um, but in any event, something's happening. Right. Um, and um, so, uh, um, but all those things, I'll tell you another example of that is uh, if you check out my Twitter feed, you'll see that uh, usually I try not to use the words like asinine, but I did in a tweet in the middle of a hurricane when uh, Scott Pruitt had said something particularly crazy uh, and, uh, you know, the former administrator of EPA. And um, and uh, it, it was uh, my, some of my family was here at our house in Travelers Rest, South Carolina, northern Greenville County, escaping the storm. My brother, my younger brother, was uh, stayed behind, and so uh, he sent us a picture of a uh, of a of a dock floating down the May River, um, and we're not talking the floating dock. We're talking a fixed pier dock that had come off of the piers, off the pilings, and is now floating intact down the river, and so. Uh, 20 minutes goes by and he, he texts again. Uh, he says, dad's dock is starting to lift off. And uh, I tell you, that got next to me and got me uh, writing something about asinine to, uh, to Scott <laughs> Pruitt at that point. Because <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? That dock was there, had been there for maybe 20 years when we got there in 1960. That dock to the thought of it being lifted off and all those memories and all those fish that we'd caught and crabs and shrimp and oysters and all those times we've had on that dock destroyed because somebody is denying the impacts of sea level rise and stronger storm intensity was just asinine. Yeah. And so uh, you'll, you'll find in my Twitter feed, I was pretty hot at that point. <laughs> well, I mean, righteously so, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing it happen and, and to, to uh, put that at, at risk, not only our, our way of life here in the low country, but um you know, it's part of our culture, our, our, what we eat, the food we eat, the, the oysters, the, it, it, it affects the economy, it affects the people who live here. Um, and it, it really is, you know, kind of bringing this back to the, to the science of this um, is really crazy to me that people are so adamant about not believing the science. I, I, Particularly conservatives, it, it, it is. I, I'll. I don't know that I'll ever understand it. To me, so, you know, science is truth. It's it's the best methodology we have to figuring out problems. And when there's a consensus from climate scientists that burning fossil fuels is causing an unnatural 
change in our climate to the point of it being dangerous to humanity, I, I don't, I, I, I really struggle with where that disconnect is there for, for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I, I've I've certainly seen the the disconnect. Uh, you know, this is this is our work at RepublicEn.org. Is we we want to speak with conservatives who have yet to um, to embrace the need for climate action. And of course, um, I can be pretty good at that because that was my first six years in Congress. You know, in other words, uh, um, I'm just like them. You know, I. Um, the evidence was before me, but I rejected it. Um, and it was, in my case, because of a felt political need. And uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, the metamorphosis I described earlier uh, put me in a different spot. So I think uh, two things going on there. One is there's a need for grace for people like me from people who have known it to be true longer than I have understood it to be true. Um, and so that's typically people of the environmental left. They, they, uh, it really, in order for us to reach progress, we really do need for the environmental left to extend grace to people like me. I was wrong for six years in Congress. Um, uh, and then I came back for another six and was uh, on the right side of things on climate, but, but so uh, first thing is we need a lot of grace. Uh, and that's what we try to do at RepublicEn.org is extend grace to fellow conservatives who haven't uh, quite come around to this yet. The second thing is to understand the, um, there is a conflict between faith and science in the minds of some. And uh, it's, uh, I think I can understand from a historical perspective, uh, it has to do with the Scopes Monkey Trial and the whole question of evolution versus creationism. Um, it has to do with uh, really uh, whether God is sovereign or man is somehow autonomous. Um, and, and there are ways to, to, to describe that that aren't offensive, but quite often the language of the left permeates the climate conversation in such a way that it's so off-putting to conservatives, particularly conservatives of faith, because it seems that and, and my friend Jim Inhofe, and he is my friend, uh, if, a senator from Oklahoma, who's probably the number one climate disputer in the U.S. Senate, if he were on the phone with us right now, he'd say, uh, see, Bob, it's so arrogant for these people to assume that God isn't sovereign, that humans are, are totally autonomous. Um, and, and I would try to convince Jim, if I had the opportunity here, to that... No, we, we agree. I, I would agree with you, Jim. God is sovereign and he's the creator. He also gives us the dignity of co-creating with him and of tending the garden. And it's an incredible calling and a beautiful thing when done with accountability and with love for God and love for people. And so, no, we're not saying that science is the measure of all things. But we are saying that with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, that what may be known about God is clear from the creation itself. So what you just said a minute ago, Rick, I think is actually quite biblical, that science is truth, is the, that's it, that, that, uh, that if you're, you're just uh, espousing the truth of Romans chapter 1 and what the Apostle Paul was saying is that, is it there's a creator who created with order and predictability and 
if it weren't so, there'd be no such thing as science. Because science involves the discovery of truth, uh, the experimentation with it, and then the requirement of replication, that somebody else can replicate your results. Um, then you have confidence in it. Well, that's exactly Romans 1. It's saying that, yeah, there's something predictable here. There's science is, is therefore leading to truth. And so, so when presented that way in a respectful way that doesn't, doesn't make fun of the faith of the, of the listener mm-hmm. or treat them like they're some kind of throwback to some previous age, um, then they can hear it. Uh, with, because if they hear that somebody cares for them, then they can, they can listen to what else they got to say. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that's, um, I love that you said that. And, and frankly, I, I, I have in, in, I'm probably guilty of that. Um, and so I, I appreciate well, you, 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 you bringing that up, extending grace, which I think is, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head is probably not probably it's, it's something that's missing in the communication. Yeah, well, we're all guilty of it, you know, because it's just sort of the way the political process goes is that we're able to brand the other side as, as Satan incarnate and we're the righteous ones. And and that's, uh, you know, that, that works sort of for us in politics. It doesn't really work in terms of governing the nation too well, uh, but it uh, it sort of gets you past your primary reelection. Uh, um, but uh, <laughs> so but we're, so we're all guilty of it. Um, and uh uh, but in, in the case of climate change, it's just that we're all in it together. It's sort of like we're sitting in the Petri dish together where we're doing an experiment on what uh, Pope Francis calls our common home. And we're picking up handfuls of the grow medium in the Petri dish. We're having a big old food fight. Um, eventually, we're going to figure out that, no, no, you know what? <laughs> we're actually in this Petri dish together. <laughs> We're doing the experiment on ourselves <laughs> and maybe we should stop the food fight and figure out how to turn the heat down under this Petri dish. The Bunsen burner is going, we're going to be soup here pretty soon. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And, and that's actually um, something, this, this might be a good, uh, a, a good point to, to shift gears a, a little bit uh, because I personally believe that, that climate change is the greatest economic opportunity of the 21st century. Yeah. Um, I think that there has never been, um, you know, for me personally, I, I, I'm a problem solver. I, I, I love to solve problems. And I think that's what um, a market-based solution loves to do and, and, and tries to, um, and, and no, not tries, but as a result, drives innovation. And what better country than America to um, acknowledge and accept that climate change is happening and uh, turn that into a, a, a market force for, for good to, to solve that problem. And so I, I would be curious to, to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and, and yeah, I'll just l- let you run from there. Yeah, it's it, well. It's uh, uh, you're you're on to something there because it's it's like I, I agree completely that this is an incredible opportunity to light up the world with more energy, more mobility, more freedom, 
uh, from distributed energy systems probably stored in better batteries, such that dark places in the world that currently fester with murderous thoughts against us in the West would become happier places. Um, and if we play our cards right, we're going to perfect those distributed energy systems and better batteries, and we're going to sell them to them. We're going to make money and create jobs here and serve our customers well. Um, and so it's a pretty it's a pretty high calling, and it's pretty exciting, really. Now, it is unless you're a coal miner. Um, uh, in which case you realize the threat. And of course, uh, I'm feeling that pretty intensely. And uh, if anybody's listening to us close to when we're recording here, which is in coronavirus times um, and the economy taking a real hit here, um, in such times you, you sort of come alongside the coal miner and say, gee, change is really pretty scary. Um, but, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak uh, at, uh, in places like West Virginia and Kentucky, and um, and uh, what I've said to them is, it's uh, it's not an easy message to deliver. It's um, it's hard to say to them, you know, uh, uh, this is going the way of the dinosaur, um, and uh, you're going to need to change. And uh, there's no real uh, easy or sugar-coated way to put that. Um, uh, but what I've said in those places like West Virginia and Kentucky is uh, learn from us in South Carolina. You know, uh, we, when I first went to Congress, uh, the idea was to protect the textile industry. And with the multi-fiber arrangement in place, it was sort of possible um, still uh, before the creation of the internet and the PC to imagine that textiles would continue to be made in South Carolina, sewn in Costa Rica into clothes, and then sold back to us. Um, but then came the internet and the PC and the expiration of the multi-fiber agreement, and the textile industry went kaput in, in South Carolina. We still do some textiles with higher, uh, higher capital outlays and actually produce a great deal of cloth, but just with a lot fewer people. Um, uh, so there's still some textile firms around, but but it was largely replaced by BMW coming to Greer, South Carolina, and putting about seven or eight billion dollars on the ground um, and employing, really, literally replacing the textile industry. And so what I've said in West Virginia and Kentucky and places like that is, no, you're not going to find a BMW. Um, it's going to be something else. But and change is difficult, but you can't keep doing the same thing you're doing when the world changes, when, when the country decided that it liked cheaper clothes from China and Vietnam, it was really hard to keep, keep that coalition together in Washington about protecting the American domestic textile industry. And so that's, it's it's hard, but that's what we've got to be w willing to do. Now, and of course, in the meantime, what we've got to do too is say to the coal miner, um, we're going to take care of that pension for you. Um, and we're going to give you some retraining assistance and we're going to give you some relocation assistance. And those are things that I think that we owe to those people who have literally given their lungs to us to keep right. us in electricity. So, 
uh, we gotta, we've got to give that to them and happily so, because those coal companies are going bankrupt. And when they go bankrupt, the pension goes away. And we've just got to step in and take care of them. Well, and I think you, you you bring up an interesting point, especially as we're as we are sitting here dealing with the this coronavirus, and um, and and an important part of all this is, is the understanding and the realization that you know we are all in this together. Um, you know, back to your your petri dish <laughs> example. You know, we're we're in the same petri dish. Um, you know, we're all. Uh, here we're we're all Americans, and you should be happy to to take care of one another in that way. Um, to for using the, the the coal miner example, and and I think that that's a hopefully something positive that that may come out of all this is is that that understanding and and maybe that's the the extended grace that um, I think we all maybe um, could, could could use a good dose of in in these times that we're living in. Yeah, and, and also to realize the incredible calling on America to whom much is given, much will be required. And we are the richest country in the world. Uh, and, you know, people say, well, China's economy is a little bit larger. Yeah, it is. Uh, but they divide it among a billion extra people. Um, so uh, uh, we are the richest country in the world. We're given very much. We need to lead the world to a solution on this. And this is another place where we find fellow conservatives getting stopped at this mental blockage, which is, okay, so we do it here. Uh, we're rich, uh, and not a lot of us don't feel rich, but compared to the rest of the world and compared to all of human history, we're extremely rich. If you've got a hot water heater in your house, you're living better than most kings of England ever lived. Um, and so, because uh, they had to have people boil water and pour it into the tub for them. Um, and so, uh, uh, so we, we've got a lot. And so we might say, well, it might work here, but how are we going to get China and India in on it? And that is a true bill. We got to figure out how to use American uh, uh, access to the market, we believe, at republicanian.org is the key. It's not moral suasion. Um, it's rather just the, the hard-nosed thing of, listen, you want to sell your products here in America? Fine. We're happy to have them. It's just you're going to internalize that negative externality in China in order to sell your stuff here. You, you don't do that? Well, we'll collect that fee for you on entry of your goods into our country through a carbon tax. And uh, now, since we're conservatives, we want that carbon tax paired with a dollar for a dollar reduction in other taxes or dividend all of that money back to the taxpayer so there's no growth of government. Uh, but that's a requirement if you're a conservative. It's not so much if you're uh, a liberal, maybe that wouldn't be important. But to us, it's important to make it what's called revenue neutral. But the second important thing for us at republician.org is it be uh, border adjustable, which means that we would apply that tax when those goods are coming in from another country that doesn't similarly internalize a negative externality at the same level. We'd collect that tax. China would object in the World Trade Organization. They'd say that's an impermissible tariff. We think they lose based on precedents in the chemical industry that say that you can have a content tax and this would be a carbon content tax. So we think it'd be upheld. If it's upheld, 
China 24 hours after that decision coming out of the World Trade Organization would have the same carbon tax. Reason, they're paying on entry into the port of Charleston, South Carolina right now, let's say, a sheet of flat steel uh, coming from Chinese industry. We're collecting the carbon tax and sending it to Washington. If they had taxed that emission in China, then that sheet of flat steel would come through the port of Charleston with no adjustment. So 24 hours later, they've got the same price on carbon dioxide and they're getting the tax money in Beijing and their goods are coming into America. And then you've got the whole world in on this, not as a result of some protracted negotiation at the, at the UN with bowing and scraping and forevermore dialogue, rather just a bold move by the United States that should appeal to conservatives that we're going to lead on this thing and the world's going to follow because it's going to be in their interest to follow. And that's using the strength of the American market um, for a good end um, and getting the whole world in on this solution. Then you got 7 billion people demanding innovation, not just 325 plus million Americans, but 7 billion people looking for cleaner, better, faster, cheaper fuels. And that's when you get real excitement in the free enterprise system and new products and, and all that opportunity you were describing earlier. Yeah, a, a complete and total transition that would, to me, it's just incredibly exciting. So, um, yeah. Well, and if I could add, Rick, you know, it's, it's, it's a place where you can see the power. That's a pricing mechanism I was just describing. There are two other ways to deal with climate change. You can incentivize uh, clean energy. And then the other way is regulate. Um, all of those are respect. All three are respectable positions. It's just, we think at republician.org that the power is in that, is in that one I was just describing the, the concept of, uh, of a pricing mechanism of internalizing negative externality, making it apparent in the price of things, um, that that's more powerful, especially than regulation, because regulation is American only. And so if you do any kind of regulatory system that's just in America, you run the risk of people picking up and moving their manufacturing from here to a place that doesn't have those kind of regulations. Well, once they get there, they emit more than they were emitting here because we are relatively efficient in our use of energy, even though we use a lot of it, we're still relatively efficient vis-a-vis um, -vis the emissions compared to say China. And so we, uh, you lose the race to reduce emissions while you're losing the unemployment, losing the employment as well. And so, a regulatory answer by itself is, is really, we just think, really inferior to this concept of uh, a worldwide application of the price. Now, a lot of people say, well, politically, though, it's just really hard to get a carbon tax. It is hard. Um, but if you're, if you're not growing government and you're giving me a tax cut somewhere else or you're dividending all the money back to me, um, I'm pretty happy. And if you're imposing on imports, well, that's a pretty great way to get the whole world in. Now, now we're talking about something that actually has effect and that really works. 
Yeah, and 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 that's the and I and I love that. What's what's interesting about that is I was talking um, on or doing another interview um, with the VP at Aspen Skiing Company, and we were talking about uh, fly fishing in in Montana, and he brought up an interesting point, which I think is relevant to, to what we're talking about, which is if you want less government regulation, then you address climate now. Um, because what will happen is what we're already starting to see in these smaller um, uh, smaller rivers and streams and, and things of that nature is that the government is having to step in and say, this stream is closed because the stream temperature is too high. And as a result of that, you can't fish. And so particularly in a state like Montana, also very conservative, that doesn't sit very well. <laughs> so it's just, it's just a, it's a microcosm, but it's the example of if you actually want less government regulation, you should be addressing climate change right now. Because, Without a doubt. Because th- th- that's the road you're going down. If Without you don't. a doubt. It's, and it should be hugely more expensive. The longer you wait, the more expensive it gets. It's just like the coronavirus, really, right? I mean, what we're seeing in the coronavirus is if there's any early intervention you can do to really contain it, then you can avoid a lot of human suffering and you can avoid a lot of expense to the economy because when you get to the place where you have to shut things down, Gee, that's enormously expensive. Um, and so all the better, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I mean, it's what we learned in kindergarten. And surely that's the case in climate change. Yep. Yeah, I uh, I couldn't agree more. And um, that's actually, and I wanted to make sure too, before we, we, we wrap, um, Bob, which is Republic Ian, um, I just want to make sure that, that I've got this right. It's republicen.org. That's a website that everyone can go to and learn more about um, about your organization and what y'all are doing to, um, I guess, transition conservatives to, to climate leadership. Is or you probably have a better way of saying that, but yeah, we're we're, we're conservative reaching conservatives on climate change, and what we're trying to do is help. Con- conservatives to hear it in their own language and to realize that uh, no need to shrink in science denial. Raise your hand. You're the kid in class with the answer. You know what to do. Use the free enterprise system uh, to to, uh, just level the playing field and then watch competition in that free enterprise system deliver the innovation that we need. But that starts with the government stepping and saying, listen, no more getting away with these costs that you're imposing on society. You got to be accountable, even biblically accountable for those costs. Now then compete, showing all those costs to that transparent, accountable marketplace. And so it's rock solid conservatism. The good news is it's acceptable to many progressives who would agree. And so our hope at Republican.org is to, yes, rally conservatives to climate action, and in the process, help them to see that, you know what? There are many progressives who would agree with us. And we can come together in America and lead the world to a solution on climate change. Um, and so it's, it's just, uh, 
an incredible opportunity. It may also be a way of healing some of the other divisions in our country to realize, oh, you know what? We really can work together. Even if you have sort of different views, um, you can come together for a common purpose to uh, protect the common good. Yep. Yeah, and 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 I love that, and I think that's probably the the perfect message to to end with, um, because I think that it does that the climate change has is providing a unique opportunity, not only an economic opportunity, but to your point, uh, to unite us rather than than divide us and and solve a problem as as a nation. So, um, I definitely would would just love to. To thank you for your time. I, I certainly appreciate everything that that y'all are doing. Um, and uh, th- this this was this was great. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Regan. Thanks for what a neat show. And uh, it really is a uh, when we get uh, anglers and uh, people hunters involved, that's when the that's when things are going to start moving. So thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for tuning in and special thanks to Bob Inglis from RepublicEN.org for joining me on the show today. The Sustainable Angler is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, uh, please leave, leave us a rating and review as that helps us out a lot. Thanks and have a great day.